We're continuing our series, Following Their Lead, How Black Theologians Help Us All Read the Bible Better. Curtis walked through this a bit last week as well, but we're going to be in the book of Galatians, where the story playing out is that Jewish Christians there have begun to say that Gentiles who want to become Christians can't, unless they also become Jewish. This movement and those who are pushing for it are called Judaizers, which I think is a pretty cool name. Can't follow Jesus with us? Gotta be circumcised? Because we're the Judaizers. I don't know. It seems fun to me. The Judaizers are those who argue for Gentiles to follow the law like they do, including circumcision, but also food laws, Sabbath, and the like. And this concerns Paul. He understands that his purpose is to introduce Gentiles to Jesus and invite them to follow Jesus, receive God's spirit, and live as Gentile Christians. Now, Paul's background as a Jewish Pharisee would give him a unique position from which to comment on this whole situation. He was very devoted to the law, to the way of life that at that point had symbolized being part of God's covenant. But he's sure that the experiences the Gentiles are having of being filled with God's spirit, of coming to know Jesus, mean that Gentiles and Jews are meant to live together in a new way. Why is Paul so sure? Because of his experiences. The importance and the trustworthiness of experience is something that we perhaps may not notice or at least not give the same weight to without the help of African-American interpreters. There is a long history of Euro-American interpretation that elevates what we'll call head knowledge over and above lived experience. Part of the reason for that is it helps to keep power by making formal education more important than informal education. So now African-Americans can help us pause to re-examine. What about experience? The experience of meeting Jesus the experience of God's presence, the experience of God's deliverance. White culture, especially because of the Enlightenment, it has a tendency to elevate what's so-called rational and objective. Black culture was denied access to Enlightenment-created institutions, but that also birthed confidence in the things that one knows because they lived them, including what they know about God. There is something true about experiential theology that we can lean into if we follow their lead. Paul's opening line of the letter says, Paul, an apostle, neither sent by human commission nor from human authorities, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Galatians is a letter that reflects Paul's trust in the experience of Christ. That shed light on everything, changes how we see it. It's a letter about experiencing Christ and creating a new life full of gospel-aligned experiences instead of law-imposed experiences. So the question today is, what experiences might Paul and African-American theologians together point out for us, and that would help us follow Jesus together? It's not all experiences equally, by the way. There are guardrails and so on. But what experiences should we trust will lead us forward as God's people? First, the experience of freedom. Freedom, of course, can be both freedom from and freedom for, and we'll see both. Freedom from the law, freedom from becoming Jewish before you can become Christian. Listen to just two snippets from the letter, starting in Galatians chapter 2, verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not compelled to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. 
But because of false believers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy on the freedom we have in Christ so that they might enslave us, we did not submit to them even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might always remain with you. Or jumping to chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Listen, I, Paul, am telling you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Once again, I testify to everyone who lets themselves be circumcised that they are obligated to obey the entire law. Brad Braxton, whose work we're drawing from today primarily, he notes one other freedom from. See, Paul notes a little bit about his itinerary, which could seem odd, but he's pointing out that he made travel choices that would be faithful to his experience of meeting Christ and finding freedom in Christ. For example, in chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, Hey, when God, who had set me apart before I was born, called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I could proclaim him among the Gentiles, I did not confer with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before me, but I went away at once to Arabia, and afterward I returned to Damascus. Paul sets himself apart a bit by saying, in effect, I trust my experience of Jesus freeing me from my pharisaical understanding of what pleased God. I didn't even go get the stamp of approval from the other apostles. And here Braxton makes such a great point. He makes Jerusalem a metaphor for seeking approval from those with power or status instead of living in freedom because we know Christ. Quoting him here, acting as if theirs is the only culture in history that matters. Some white Americans have surmised that those who stand outside their culture and history lack inherent validity and therefore must go to Jerusalem to receive white approval. Inherent in this invitation to come to Jerusalem is the patronizing attitude that African-American culture is insufficient. And of course, this expands beyond to other cultures and ethnicities as well. It's a great point for us to stop and reflect on the recent history of the white evangelical church. In what ways have we acted like Jerusalem? In what ways have we been gatekeepers instead of freedom ringers? In what ways has our tradition considered our experiences to be normal and thrown the side eye at anything outside of what's familiar or comfortable or meets our standards of what's good church? So there's freedom from. There is also freedom for. What are we free to do now? Well, in Peter's case, he was free to eat with Gentiles. Galatians 2 talks about Paul opposing Peter because Peter had been eating with Gentiles, but then he walked it back. And here's what Braxton notes. Peter missed a prime opportunity to become black or at least to identify with some of the black condition. When faced with the opportunity to stand with a marginalized group and suffer with them and even for them, Peter demonstrated he would rather take refuge in dominant ideology, which castigated Gentiles as persons who stood outside of God's approval. What is freedom for? Freedom is here to help us practice costly solidarity. Speaking of those who say they want good for the African-American community, Braxton goes on and says, had they shown a willingness to stand up for the African-American community in the moment of truth and to risk their position and privilege. Though they had white skin, many in the African-American community would have considered them black in some limited way, but we don't stand up. And again, while Braxton speaks of African-American communities, these Antioch moments, they're happening in the rest of the black community, in Asian Pacific Islander native communities. And we are all free to practice costly solidarity because of Christ. We will find we can do it 
not only because we've experienced Christ's invitation to be one with others, not only because we're invited to be free from anything that holds us back, much in the way they were free from the Judaizers' agenda, but most of all, we will find that there is love inviting us in because Christ loved us first. You see, Christ came and practiced costly solidarity with us so that sin would not win. What love? We were loved first. And what is solidarity but great love in action? This is a small example I'm about to give. I am not saying starting our church is like the struggle for civil rights in the 50s and 60s. But however, I do think that we are coming to a moment in the white evangelical spaces and the post-evangelical spaces where leaning into oneness and freedom in Christ is becoming more costly. For our group, we did not set out to start an affirming church. We set out to start a church, and we wanted to be sure everyone had a seat at the table, regardless of their gender identity or sexual orientation. We didn't set out to start an anti-racist church. We set out to start a church, one that did justice. And it seems today that anti-racism is an important part of how that will take shape. We didn't set out to start a political church, but following Jesus has always had political implications. And the only way you can move forward on any of these things is that you are convinced, first of all, that you are loved so much you can't mess it up. And then you are convinced that that love has set you free to follow Jesus in these particular contextual ways for today, even if being in solidarity with these communities will be costly. So what experiences should we trust to help us follow Jesus together? First, the experience of freedom, freedom from and freedom for. Second, the experience of peace. Galatians 1.3, Paul writes, May God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Jesus gave his life for our sins just as God the Father planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. All glory to God Father forever and ever. Amen. There's not a lot of information to shed light on what makes Paul call the world evil in this case. He simply notes it, probably because it's true. The world is also lovely and beautiful, but we would be living with our heads buried in the sand to not acknowledge that it's also evil. And as Braxton comments on these verses, he notes how they are all one connected idea. That is, grace and peace are the experience of what he calls the Christ event. Jesus giving his life begins in Bethlehem. It shows up all around Nazareth and Galilee and culminates in his death and resurrection. And so to have grace and peace is to have experienced Christ right in the midst of this evil world. From an African-American experience, he notes, peace is deliverance in the midst of conflict and evil. It is not the experience of the absence of conflict and evil because the struggle is inevitable. Look what marks, quote, this evil age, unquote. He writes, we, the African-American community, also struggle against the principalities and powers of deep-seated racism and xenophobia in the white American community. And so he concludes that for Paul, Peace is not an abstract category, but is the state that results from God's deliverance. To have peace is to be rescued from this present evil age. And white experiences may find they don't always understand this because white culture is about avoiding the need to be delivered at all. We work or buy our way out of this present evil age, and then we call that blessing. But what if the most blessed are those who, like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, experience the nearness of God in the midst of the suffering. 
You know who gets especially tripped up by the question of why th- bad things happen in the world? Yeah, the uh, affluent white moderate types. Because we want to reject that the world is evil at all so that we can maintain an illusion of our own innocence. We reject systems or structures that shape the world so we can just be individuals. And we do faith as me and Jesus. So we often expect God to give us the peace of removing or fixing our situations. We feel some kind of way if that isn't what God does. The Bible doesn't really concern itself with the question of why bad things happen. For them, it's like, because God gave people choices? Because sin is holistically damaging? The question the biblical writers care more about is, since bad things happen, what can we expect of Yahweh God? Can we expect help? Can we expect care? Can we expect rescue? Yahweh is worth trusting because they are the only one who can offer peace right in the midst of the bad things. And so the answer they give from the experiences they have is those who trust God find peace, comfort, and strength in the midst of this evil world. And that is deliverance. That's not only what the African-American theologians invite us to see, but also the prophets. Consider Isaiah 40, who says, Look up into the heavens. Who created all the stars? God brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by its name. Because of God's great power and incomparable strength, not a single one is missing. O Jacob, how can you say the Lord does not see your troubles? O Israel, how can you say God ignores your rights? Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. God never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of God's understanding. God gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youths will become weak and tired and young men will fall in exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow faint. As we follow their lead, African-American theologians remind us through this letter in Galatians that we can trust our experiences We can trust how we've met Christ. We can trust how the Spirit has led us, especially our experiences of freedom. We are free from the things that keep us from following Christ. We are free for the purpose of costly solidarity with one another, a solidarity that ushers in the reality of the kingdom more and more. And we have an experience offered to us of peace, not as the absence of challenge, but as deliverance right in the midst of it, a deliverance of seeing Christ there with us. May we find ourselves this week experiencing God more and more in our everyday moments. And as we do, may we also thank God for the leadership of our African-American siblings as they call us to discover God in new and wonderful ways. Amen.